the Crude Audacity Podcast. Podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. I am Catherine Mills. Even in the downtimes, the oil field is still the epitome of opportunity. It doesn't come without strategy and sacrifice, and the road to success is lined with failures. So, how do you recognize a new path in an evolving and uncertain patch? One word statistics. Here to discuss stats, strategy, and stamina, Austin Akers. Welcome to the Crude Audacity Podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. You have quite a history in oil and gas. I know you got started at an early age. You've kind of seen uh, builds and rebuilds from a very successful standpoint, all forms of energy, uh, even a little bit of minerals in your background. So to kick us off, can you take us through the beginning? How did you get started? Why oil and gas? Why are you so dedicated to energy? Why the Rockies? I mean, just give us all the details. All right. Uh, Tall order, right? It's a lot there. Well, uh, let's let's unpack it. Um, <laughs> so I was born in Denver, mm-hmm. and uh, my dad's a title attorney, um, so it definitely works for people in the oil and gas business. Um, and my mom is a landman at Incana, or now Oventive, or whatever they call it. Which name do you prefer? I definitely prefer Incana. Okay. <laughs> uh, Other definitely. one sounds like birth control, right? Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> um yeah, so I, I was, you know, grew, went to high school, uh, Cherry Creek High School down in Greenwood Village. I had a job at Mountain View Golf Course from like age 14 through 15. Okay. And it was hard. I learned quickly that I didn't want to work um, in manual labor for very long. I was about to say, what were they having you do? Uh, I drove that ball picker and I <laughs> cleaned the golf balls and I clean pick the sides of the range and I was at some Christmas party I think it was um, at my mom's house and uh, one of our family friends a guy named Gary Butler who um, still I think partially owns at least Context Energy Company a brokerage here in town asked if I wanted a job just like putting together lease packages stuffing envelopes things like that and you were like yes please yeah (laughs) because I was getting paid five dollars and fifteen cents an hour at the golf course and I think he offered me ten to start which was done yeah that was an easy sell you just doubled your profits yeah it was great (laughs) so um i did a bunch of just envelope stuffing i put a lot of old lease files into chronological order just kind of you know a lot of very basic jobs to start with but i guess i did enough work and i did a good enough job to where when i turned 16 gary was willing to send me out to the field as a landman to learn how to run title and lease people that's um, awesome. That's really yeah. young. It was. So at 16, I was in the Akron County, uh, or I'm sorry, it was Washington County seat of Akron, um, running title and sending out some lease offers and okay. um, loved it. You know, loved the fact that at 16, people were paying for my hotel room and all my mileage. And I was out there working on my own, putting together title sheets and calling people and negotiating leases. It was yeah. just cool. So I did that. You got for, to grow up kind of quickly from that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always been told I have an old soul, so oh. that's fair. <laughs> um, my mom's been telling me that since I was five. 
so went, um, I guess, just kept doing the leasing thing mm -hmm. for summers, spring breaks, um, any time I was back in Denver. I was actually, um, I went to CU for my freshman year of college, but then I transferred to Cornell for my sophomore through senior. That is impressive. It was, it was, uh, I need it's to get out of Colorado Yeah, I was about to say, while. that's a real change of scenery, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was great, though. Um, it was good for me. I definitely needed to get out. <laughs> But uh, kept doing it whenever I possibly could, even did some stuff sort of remotely. So Oh, that's um, cool too. Yeah, I was just working out of you know dorm rooms or apartments, things like that. Yeah. And um, still running a lot of title. Uh, did a little work for my dad, kind of running through abstracts and just helping him with some paralegal work on the title side. So Land and legal, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, so did a lot of that. And basically what happened is when I was a senior in college, I decided that I was sick of being the guy who was out calling people and negotiating leases for their minerals and that I wanted to be the guy that owned the minerals so the landman would call me. Yeah, what's the secret sauce there? Because I'd like to be that guy too. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, since uh, my family didn't have any money and I didn't have any money, it was find somebody with money oh, um, who wanted plan. to invest in minerals. <laughs> and I found a couple different guys uh, here in Denver who were really instrumental in sort mm -hmm. of helping me along the way. Um, they don't know that I'm going to be dropping their names on this podcast, but I'm sure they wouldn't mind. There's a guy, Joe McMahon, who's been awesome to me, and then another guy, Phil Schreiner, who worked for JHS Energy and bought a lot of minerals with them. Mm -hmm. Started off buying in the DJ exclusively, but as I was in New York and the Marcellus was blowing up in Pennsylvania just to the south, started doing some Marcellus work too. That's good timing. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was good timing. I wish I was like a couple years earlier because I would have crushed it, but um, <laughs> I still did okay. And so basically my deal with these guys was I would take normally, it depended on deal side, but just call it somewhere between like a you know, seven and 12% commission. Okay. And I could take that in cash from the deal or I could take it in kind. And okay. um, I usually try to take as much in kind as I could. Okay. Though I had no money, so I had to take some money. Exactly. Um, you had school to pay for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I did. And it's not cheap out there. <laughs> no. um, I gotta say, my parents helped me out with most of it, so I can't, I can't claim that I paid for the whole thing myself. Good shout out to the parents yeah. there. Yeah, <laughs> no, they helped out, they helped out. Um, and so, uh, anyway, got a lot of traction, um, okay. particularly in the DJ. This was right around when EOG had permitted the Jake well. Yeah. And um, I was that just... That was kind of a game changer, oh, that Oh, it was Jake a huge well. game changer. <laughs> uh, huge game changer. And it just so happened that right before they drilled it, um, I got connected with a landowner who owned about a thousand acres up there in that 11 North 63 West area, which is right where Jake is. I think Jake might be 1263, or actually, I think it, it's 11. That's a really good memory, dude. <laughs> well, it was a big deal for me. <laughs> um, and so negotiated it mm -hmm. sort of before I think EOG had even drilled the well. Yeah. And we were kind of you know going on a little bit of a flyer because oh, 100%. You know, nothing had been drilled up there. Um, Gotta and love the geology. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was truly where the luck played into our hands yeah. big time because obviously the Jake well was a huge deal, transformational, and it allowed me to basically take a bunch of the minerals that I had gotten as part of the commission to sell and then sort of use as seed money to go out and start you know, buying some of my own minerals or starting private equity yeah. back companies and things like that. Um, so during this whole time frame, with minerals, so this was kind of senior year of college, like I said, and then after, 
I had moved to Houston mm-hmm. uh, because my then girlfriend, now wife, was in medical school down there. I was about to say, why Houston? Yeah, no, it had nothing to do with like really chasing the oil business down there. It had to do with a girl. But yeah, um, and medical school is kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I had moved to Houston. I was doing minerals from there, and honestly, I was super bored. Um, I actually think minerals are incredibly boring to Ooh. this day. Um, they can be extremely profitable, yes. but I find them to be horribly boring because <laughs> you don't cause any value to get created as a mineral no. owner. You're depending you're on just operators. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're really, you are at the whim of what other people are going to do with their capital budgets. Mm-hmm. And so you can place yourself well, but once you do that, there's nothing you can do. Exactly. So you needed to be more in a opinionated enact change at different level type place yes i wanted to see where the action was okay um and so somehow in 2010 during the you know as we we're coming out of the recession mm-hmm. i was able to find a job at lynn energy okay the yeah. now defunct lynn energy <laughs> um, i do remember the name <laughs> yes but i was uh, i was there early on i think when we joined lynn i want to say there were maybe a one and a half billion dollar company so not small but not yeah. huge um, when I ended up leaving, I think there were like 10 or $12 billion companies. So the amount of growth was unbelievable. And so I just got tossed into the fire, never having an in-house landman job before and just learning um, as quickly as I possibly could. Best way to learn. It was good. Baptism. Um, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of work involved, but it was fun. And uh, that's where I met my co-founder of Bison, David Gonzalez. So okay. David was sort of the head ops guy for the Delaware area, um, okay. I guess, that Lynn had. And I got ended up, I ended up being promoted into the head land person for that same area. So Dave and I did a lot of work together. Okay. And um, that's how you vet your team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Dave was entrepreneurial. I was doing the minerals sort of by night at that point. Okay. And that was um, your side hustle or minerals? It was that's my side hustle. Not a hustle. bad side hustle, was, even if it's boring. <laughs> no, yeah, it worked out well. Um, it was actually much better once I got the job because. You know, then I'd work all day, come home, eat dinner, yeah. work for three, four hours at night. Honestly, that's all you need for minerals. Exactly. <laughs> but um, cushy life there. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was good. It was you know I learned so much at Lynn and mm-hmm. met such a bunch of great people. And so obviously I told you I met Dave, and then Dave had a friend Jay Paul who was also at Lynn in a different group than us. He was with the BD team, but Jay Paul um, was another engineer who really wanted to go off and do his own thing with private equity. Okay. Jay Paul and David knew each other. David told Jay Paul that they had to bring me in on this deal because I had all this experience with sort of entrepreneurial side of oil and gas. I knew all about minerals. Mm -hmm. I could do the leasing. I could do that whole thing. Um, And so we all met and decided, yeah, let's give it a shot. And private equity did not terrify you. You know, Jay Paul, honestly, I got to give him credit. He he had great connections with them because Lynn had been buying stuff left and right from private equity backed groups. Okay. And so he had tons of contacts in the space. Um, he had been around them a lot. And, you know, at the end of the day, they want to make money. We had had a pretty good That is the goal. Record. Yeah, we like, are the industry of money as yeah. much as people want to <laughs> yeah. say rocks and oil. We right. need money. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's it's getting harder to do that, but hey, we, at the time um, we had a good plan, and so Dave and Jay Paul were from Farmington, New Mexico. Okay, there was kind of a new play emerging in that area. 
Um, we knew that there had been some deals done recently uh, in that space, kind of looking at a horizontal plan to Gallup Sandstone. Okay, I was about to say, a new play in San Juan? Yeah, it was... was uh, the Gallup was considered new back then? So they had drilled it vertically, but yeah. in a very small area. Yeah. And the new play was going horizontally. Okay, it, okay. And our thesis was a little different originally. Our thesis was actually to take... Uh, we call them wolfberry style completions because they were from the wolfberry <laughs> and it was just basically just vertical stacked multi-stage um completion jobs so still huge fracks okay but vertically into a bunch of different formations as opposed to horizontally in one so not like wine racking or was no it? it wasn't it was just purely like we were taking advantage of the fact that san juan had three or four benches that okay. were um you know, that you could produce together that's awesome and it, it worked i mean i think we drilled a lot of vertical wells i think we drilled probably and 20 some vertical wells and all of them were were pretty strong mm -hmm. um but uh while we were doing that in canna actually came down and drilled i think it was the first horizontal at least first modern horizontal gallop well okay yeah and that well was was pretty good and yeah. so we quickly <laughs> pivoted and said let's check this out yeah because um, the whole world was going horizontal at that point right? oh yeah um, and new technology, got to keep up. Right, exactly. <laughs> so we drilled some horizontal wells, um, and I guess over the course of two and a half years with Logos, we built a position of probably about thirty thousand acres, something like that. Wow. Yep. That's <sighs> a lot, really fast. Yeah, it was it was a good amount. We only did you know we did a lot of sort of small leasing. We did a bunch of farm out deals. Mm -hmm. We did uh, one fairly sizable acquisition, like 12, 15,000 acres, but almost no PDP. Okay. Um, but built the company up pretty well, drilled some good wells, and ended up uh, selling that company at the end of 2014 to WPX Energy. Okay. And um, That's a good day. <laughs> it was good. It was good. Yeah, I think when we signed our, or when we signed the LOI, crude was like $90 a barrel. When we signed the PSA, That's crude was... That's amazing timing. Yeah, well, it, we got lucky. Yeah, I got to give credit to WPX. They, they closed the deal, despite yeah. oil dropping. <laughs> I really think it was maybe $30 between LOI and oh. signing of the, uh, or closing of the final deal. Oh, well, so, glad they decided to sign. <laughs> yes, they did. Uh, they were good folks over there. So um, after we sold the WPX, um, David and I kind of decided that we wanted to not be in the San Juan Basin anymore. Okay. San Juan's, in our opinion, kind of a tough basin to be in. It's uh, a very tough basin to be in. It's a small area. There are only a few people, or a few operators there even today. <laughs> I think you've got Enduring down there now, and then you have DJR, who used mm -hmm. to be in the DJ Basin, who bought in Canna stuff. Um, and Enduring bought WPX's stuff, so they have all of old, all of Logos Resources' old stuff. <laughs> um, but it's it's a small basin. The differentials are very challenged because yeah. there's not any pipe. There's uh, all the pipeline takeaway is maxed out basically for basically, oil. Basically, yeah. And it's pretty much impossible to build additional pipelines because you got to go through a bunch of Indian reservations. Uh -huh. And not only that, like the area just as a whole isn't that big for crude. Like it's, like it's isolated, a gas basin. Really, yeah. yeah, it's a gas basin. So we were, at the time, um, I was still doing minerals and I was in the DJ and you know the DJ was really ahead of the curve in terms of full field horizontal development. Mm -hmm. I mean, even back then they were drilling 20 horizontal wells per section. We wouldn't do that now, but <laughs> back then that's what they were doing. I was about to say, that might be overkill. <laughs> so it was a little overkill. Everyone learned that lesson. Um, have they now? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'd say most people have learned that lesson. Uh, but um, we had been watching that very closely 
And so David and I kind of decided like, hey, like maybe it's time for us to try to do something on our own. Okay. And so um, you're ready to go back at it again then. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't <laughs> quite know. You know, we like I said, Jay Paul had really helped us raise the money the first time around. But yeah. we figured we had a good track record now. We had a lot of good connections and we could probably probably raise money on our own. We also thought we had a really good idea in the okay. DJ. Um, and turned out I think we were right because we had offers um, from private equity backers within maybe five days of going out on the road. Are you serious? Yeah. Five days? It was pretty when they find teams they like it's pretty clear okay that's that's my experience with it like you know who you fit with you know who you don't yeah and we really just meshed particularly with carnelian energy capital who's a, mm -hmm. now has been the backer for the last three bikes exactly yes um but even other groups were, were you know very we were well received everyone was motivated to engage with you yeah i think we had a lot of proprietary knowledge of the dj we okay. had a track record we were younger we wanted to work really hard we had equity because of the sale of logos that we could put in so that they knew we were invested in Enthusiasm aligned. goes very far in this industry, I would say. Enthusiasm and mm -hmm. alignment of capital. Um, <laughs> they, so what they was your that. secret sauce for the DJ at the time? Oh, it was statistics, basically. It was very clear where um, people had drilled sliding sleeve wells with terrible fracks yeah. and where they hadn't. And it was easy to compare the geology and understand that this isn't a geology problem this is an engineering problem and it's solvable and these are the variables that you have to solve Ooh. so it was pretty um pretty clear we had looked at three areas at the time specifically um we looked at the we called it the conoco area um okay. which was the area south of the airport which is ultimately where we ended up oh the burial grounds no <laughs> yeah <laughs> um then we looked at seven north area so kind of like seven north 65 through 67 west okay and then we looked at sort of the state line area, yeah. um, you know, and where EOG had been with Jake, mm -hmm. um, and where EOG was then going sort of north into Laramie County with the Codell play. How long did it take you to sort of do all these analytics? What, what well, kind we had of done a lot of mineral yeah. work. So, but building up to go out and seek funding. I mean, what type of what type of uh, I guess pre work were you doing preparatory work to make sure that you came across as like well prepared? Um, that's a great question. I mean, it was, it was a lot for sure. Okay. I don't know how many hours to. Well, yeah, it to just it. doesn't seem like something you could do two to three hours in the evening. Like you have to be kind of dedicated to it. Yeah, and you know, luckily because we had the minerals going on for so long, like we kind of lived and breathed it, right? Okay. Like we knew every you were part in of the, the mix DJ, then. right? Like we knew we were getting, you know production summaries based off of royalty checks. Okay. We were seeing AFEs come through. Like we, we, we just had a lot of information. Okay. And like I said, the statistics were amazingly clear. Um, like it was just, it was amazing that no one else was sort of going after some of these areas that were so clearly good geologically but hadn't been drilled correctly. Okay. And I think, you know, having that was big in raising of private equity dollars, but equally as big was the track record. Okay. Um, and then honestly, probably equally as big to the track record was the network. Having grown up in Denver, having, you know, my parents be in the business, mm -hmm. having so many connections to folks kind of throughout the area was super helpful because when the private equity guys are trying to decide who to back, like they want to know that you're going to be able to get in the right doors. That exactly. You're be able to, you Can know, you of, like rub the right elbows, exactly. shake the right hands, that 
so I think that was kind of the, the mix, right? It was number one, great statistical and technical understanding of the basin as a whole, which mm -hmm. we had through minerals and just sort of the work that we had done cursorily to identify these three areas. Yeah. Number two, track record with Logos. We had a great story to tell about how that all went down. Yeah. And then number three, yeah, the you know, so the connections that we had here in Denver. Um, and I think that was that was the the ability for us to get the funding was all based on that. That's so cool. So what are your big initiatives now? Oh man, big initiatives now. So, I mean, Bison One sold. Yes. Um, very happy with that outcome. <laughs> uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was uh, worked out well for us. Um, and as soon as we sold Bison One, even before sort of the ink had dried on dried on the page, we started Bison Two. I know y'all really jumped right back into it. Yeah. Um, no breaks, no vacation. No. Uh, I still get some complaints about that from time to time from <laughs> folks here, which then I don't blame them. But yeah, like we saw an opportunity there that was closing rapidly in yeah. our minds. Like the statistics again, you know, I don't mean to go, keep going back to that, but it's important. No, it's very important. So Arapahoe County was so clear. Yeah. I mean, Conoco had done like all the technical work you ever needed to do to understand pretty much the entire area. Yeah. Um, so that that made that easy, and that's why I think we got an offer to sell it before we'd even finished drilling our first well. I think we got like an unsolicited offer literally when we were halfway through drilling. So you the had an exit strategy well. before you were even started. That's awesome. We didn't even. I mean, we didn't know we had one, but <laughs> we we did apparently. Um, but it was just it was so easy to understand. This new area it was a little bit different because unlike the Conoco Arapaho area. There weren't any new wells drilled. Okay. It was all old wells, so you had to be the first guy to go out and drill the yeah. new, you know, use new technology. Which can be kind of intimidating. Yeah, and is also... Is it really going to work? <laughs> private equity guys don't love being no. the first either, so no. it was a little bit more of a sell yeah. than um, Bison 1 had been. Okay. But luckily, coming off the heels of a big win, I think they said, like, look, like, you guys really believe in this, like, we're behind you. That's awesome. It. Yeah, they're great, so... We did. We went after the area we now call Baja, which is sort of West Pony, uh, okay. like North 60 West is pretty much where we're at. Okay. And drilled the first two enhanced stimulation wells out there, or caster wells, which are both like 400 plus MBO wells. Um, we're economic even at our well cost for our first two wells, which were expensive. That is really cool. Yeah. Um, so many do not start that way. Yeah. No, it's uh, <laughs> they don't. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to find a nice way to say it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so you know, really, what our whole focus in Bison Two has been is profitability. Okay. Um, and that's really our, if you're asking what our initiative now is, every day is about being profitable. Okay. So just optimize, optimize, optimize. Yep. Whatever that means in whatever form you can take it. Exactly. I think for us that's meant an extremely high focus on midstream contracts, midstream takeaway, mm -hmm. um, piping, everything. Everything. No trucking. Ooh. Um, our LOE is super low. Our differentials are extremely low. Any transport costs we have is definitely probably I would say we're all best in basin on everything there that's awesome um, yeah so our LOE is extremely low our well costs have come down tremendously uh, the most recent program that we just finished it uh, looks like our mid-reach laterals about 7600 foot laterals are going to come in at 4.8 million even with a huge frack 50 barrels per foot and 2500 pounds per foot damn straight yeah, so really, I mean, our ops team has just crushed it there. That's um, awesome. They've done great, and and it's been a real focus on 
on that because you know you can drill big EUR wells all day long, but if well, they don't make money, exactly, yeah, exactly. There's no point if it's not making money. <laughs> right. And nowadays, you know, being in the DJ, like you're probably not going to sell anytime soon. No, so. I would hold on to it right now. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a volatile area right now. It is really Politically. Only, Yeah, I mean, your only way to make money is to drill. I would agree. So. Yes. Well. We are seeing across industry a push for a new type of oil and gas company, but nobody really knows what that means quite yet. Even at NAEP, one of the primary themes was the death of private equity and what that means. Because if you think about it, private equity has only been around for about 10 or 15 mm -hmm. years, or at least the structure that we know now. So what are your takes on that? What, what do you see changing in industry? How are these old school type companies going to evolve into what this new type of oil company could, should, would be? Yeah, it's a really interesting time right now. Um, and we're definitely in the mix of it, having Bison 2 that's currently operating, yeah. drilling and heavy into it, and then also having Bison 3, which just raised money to yeah, go I out saw and try that. to yeah, take advantage of Are you looking of the for downturn. reservoir engineers? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> never know. You never uh, know. <laughs> let's see how oil does over the next few weeks. Oh, um, damn. <laughs> but it's it's been interesting because I would say that Carnelian's been super supportive of pretty much, you know, whatever we want to do as long as there's good data behind it. Yes. The thing is now that like some of this stuff doesn't have good data behind it anymore. Well, um, we are an industry of big data, but the problem is, is big data has really bad data mixed into yeah. it. So um, good data is what these days? I don't know. It's hard to hard to say. I mean, the data that I'm kind of referring to is like ESG data, right? Oh, and ESG measurable me environmental yes. sustainability governance. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, that in my mind when you're asking about the new energy company is what we're really talking about is okay. like how what is your for lack of a better term esg score and how do you go about getting it exactly and um because that's definitely evolving right now it's evolving hugely it's particularly in other industries but even in our industry i think bp just announced maybe it was like two weeks ago that they're beyond gonna be, petroleum yeah they're really embracing it now and they have to i think they're brilliant for doing it yeah. honestly um like the fact that they say they're going to be carbon neutral, even including their downstream emissions by like 2050, I think that's where we all have to go. I think there's something there. However, I would say carbon neutral, decarbonization, uh, all of those fancy buzzwords, a lot of them are empty rhetoric. There's really no definition behind them yet. I couldn't agree more. Uh, <laughs> but Good, the I'm problem, glad. <laughs> yeah. The crazy part is, though, um, I said this at a talk I gave last week, like, the market can stay irrational way longer than you can stay liquid. So even though what we does don't that mean? know, basically what it means is we don't know what those things mean. Like you said, there's no good data behind them. Yeah. Getting back to your point earlier, um, it's really kind of a political social movement in Correct. a lot of ways. However, equities are down what like forty percent in the last year, and oil is only down fifteen percent, or at least it was as of maybe last week. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, last it's week not, was hard. <laughs> yeah, they've, they've decoupled, right? Yeah. Like, it's it's not about energy prices anymore. It's about the fact that people are fleeing oil and gas companies in the public markets. Yes. And I think that a big part of that is this ESG push. Okay. And so I don't disagree with you that it's something that is hard to quantify and may not even be real in some respects. Mm -hmm. But I think if anyone wants access to inexpensive real capital in our business, at least over the foreseeable future, you have to be cognizant of it and you have to be talking about it. Yes. Um, every bank that comes in here, 
uh, the minute we start talking about ESG, they love it. They eat it up. Um, <laughs> they just they don't even know that it's so important, but then they go to their credit committees and they're like, what are they doing and then about they ESG? Realize, yeah. yeah. Interesting. ESG so. has become our new social license to operate. Exactly. Our CSR. That's, that's how we look at it. Yeah. Is, it's just you know, the evolution of CSR, in right. my opinion. I, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and so we, you know, that's a big part of, of how we think about stuff. And I will say that it's, it has taken some work mm-hmm. um, and will continue to take work to get private equity companies to see it that way. Because at the end of the day, like, they have to make a certain economic return. And yeah. ESG policies... Don't when you look at them align. directly, yeah, they don't have a specific direct economic impact. Exactly. But, you know, when you look at the business as a whole, and that's what I'm saying is like the data that's out there, it needs to improve and we need to be able to quantify it, like access to capital, you know, access to sort of just stability in terms of your ability to operate. Like you said, the social mm-hmm. license, like all those things are worth lots of money. And so private equity, in my mind, is coming around to that. They just don't exactly understand it yet. And honestly, neither do we. I mean, no yeah. one fully understands it. We just all know we need to make a push for it. Exactly. Um, and probably need to define it in some capacities is one of the primary pushes. But something that's coming out of it that I find very interesting, that I honestly I disagree with at this point, is this push for transparency that you're seeing as a social movement. Mm. I would say as a privatized industry, we do a very good job of releasing data. However, if you're not in industry, and even if you are an industry, it can take anywhere from five to 10 years to actually understand said data. So with this push for transparency, we're seeing it here in Colorado with air quality and methane measurements Mm -hmm. and seeing like, oh, you released this study, but we don't believe you because it doesn't fit our narrative, even though we can have third parties, internal parties, individual companies, everyone saying, here is the science, here's the transparency. So what do you see happening from a leadership standpoint on what it means to be a transparent industry now? I mean, I think it's going to continue to go that way. I don't disagree with you that it's it's rough because, yeah, people can spin your data however they want to spin it. But I think we're doing, particularly in Colorado, like amazing things on the air quality front. Mm-hmm. Um, Seriously cool things. Yeah. like I mean, we spend so much time and effort and money on air quality at all of our pads. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really a point of pride for us and something like we care a lot about. Yes. And I think that that's something that, you know, is something we should showcase. Mm-hmm. Colorado's unique in that though, because you can't, you don't want to show what is going on in Texas. I mean, I'll be honest with you, that's just the truth right now. Like, you don't <laughs> want to show what's going on in North Dakota. Like, it's just, it's not Are great. you talking about flaring? <laughs> I mean, flaring is only part of it. Yeah. I mean, the facilities and the the methane emissions from that, it's not great. I mean, it's not terrible. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, natural gas and the shale revolution has been wonderful for the climate in so many ways. But there's always more we can do. Yeah. And Colorado is a benchmark, but we are seeing a definite push for a moratorium on energy operations throughout the state. Sure. So you're it's like you're killing your good steward. Yeah, but we also have a crazy political situation in Colorado. Uh, I think we went for Sanders last night, so. Um, yeah, yeah, that was a little disappointing. Yeah, I, like if we weren't doing these things, um, and if we weren't showcasing what we're doing as an industry industry to be, you know, responsible, I think it'd be worse. Hmm. Um, I do. I, I really do think. So it'd be you're worse. you're still of the opinion continue to push for transparency, whatever that might be. Not whatever that might be. Oh. I think it has to be dependable. Okay. That's, that's my biggest thing is... Um, Explain know, that then. There's just... There's a lot of data out there, to your point, that's mm-hmm. difficult to sift through and in a lot of cases maybe erroneous. Like, um, you know, in terms of air quality monitoring, things like that. Like, 
we're not at a point now where we can really do that reliably honestly like we can do it even there's no okay. bubble around a wellhead right so or even around like flares or what right. have you so sitting there and putting on methane detectors right. well like did a cow fart or did someone leave yeah. their truck running no. which is it agreed I, I think it's more important like the mechanical measurements like that's more what we focus on like how you know what's our vru runtime okay. like are we sure that we have negative pressure on tanks like okay. um or positive pressure as it may be so it's just that's what we focus on more so than um, sort of constant methane okay. um, or not just methane, but I guess like VOC yeah. measurement. And it's not because we don't think that is going to be reliable in the future. It's just right now we're, we don't think we're really at a place that it makes sense to do that because we don't know how much value it adds. And to exactly. your point, it throws a lot of data out there that's questionable. Exactly. And I think it's necessary to a certain extent, but again, you have to you can't just tell part of the story with that. Yeah. So being an entrepreneur in this space, I know that you got into it at a great time. Lucky you. I wish I had done the same. But <laughs> um, it's not the same game that it used to be. It doesn't. It takes a lot more than two guys in a cell phone or four friends like doing their best to collab or to consolidate some acreage. Yeah. So. How do you become an entrepreneur in oil these days? Is it a possibility? Is it even a risk worth taking with the current environment? <laughs> and I'm talking markets and socially. Look, I wouldn't tell my kids to go into the oil and gas business right now, but I think if you're talking about right now in the next few years, I think it's actually potentially a great time to be an entrepreneur in the oil and gas space. Okay, so elaborate on that for me because I'm listening. Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, it's always darkest before the dawn. And this time is a little different because it does seem like the capital's evaporating from the space. The the money is demanding something different. Yeah. Exit strategies are different. To your point, ESG is different. I mean, keeping up with the traditional old school methods, that's not applicable anymore. No, I, I mean, I think it can be. Okay. Private money, I think, is still looking for return. And at the end of the day, we can generate return. I mean, mm -hmm. even today, the wells we're drilling in DJ at $47 oil or whatever it is, I mean, we can drill 50% IRR wells. So yeah. we're still profitable. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't exist everywhere, but there are places in this country where that definitely exists. And even though the public markets don't seem to understand that right now, private capital does. Okay. Private and now I gotta, I gotta differentiate to here, yeah, between private capital and private <laughs> exactly. equity. Exactly. Um, because private equity, you know, they have a time frame, and it's usually like three they, to five years. Yeah, I was gonna say like if you're seven if you to ten. Five, yeah. <laughs> if you're lucky to find a ten-year engagement, right. you're a unicorn. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, they want to be targeting twenty percent plus returns. Oh, yeah. and I thought the rule of thumb was thirty-five. I think it depends on if you're asking a private equity guy or somebody who's burdened you, by their waterfall structure but I, I you think, would know more than me yeah I think <laughs> like they want higher than that but right now if they can get consistent 20% returns across their portfolio now that's after all their costs right? that's course. after the waterfalls and everything I think they're good with that okay interesting um, good to know Carnelian guys might disagree with me on that you, can, you should talk to them but <laughs> yeah we'll get them on the podcast yeah no, they're interesting <laughs> dudes um, but I, I think private equity's evolving because they have to because okay. they're going to have longer hold times yeah I think right now so much capital has gone out of the space and it's so ugly and brutal out there that there's a lot of opportunity. You just have to find the dollars. Yeah. So if you so can how find do you do that? Because I was always told, do not enter an engagement unless you already know where your money is coming from and you know where your exit strategy is. And <laughs> I've got to say that most of you entrepreneurs don't always know that. So it's a fair point. I mean, I guess that's what you're saying in terms of like. You got to know who's who's yeah. funding you and then how you're going to get it back before you even get started. 
Yeah, I mean, look, if you're somebody who just got laid off, mm-hmm. what do you have to lose kind of to go out there and try? I mean, you might not know everything about where your money's coming from, and I agree with you, like, that's a huge negative if you don't have yeah. somebody behind you. But in this day and age, especially if you don't have a track record, if you can find an asset and bring that to bear in terms of your fundraising, which is hard to do because yeah. it's a big time balance and you know banks don't like it and companies don't like it. But banks don't like anything. Nobody likes anything these days. <laughs> you know, I guess I would say like I don't think it's unreasonable to try. Like I think I'm, we're seeing a lot of places where people are making great wells and there's a lot of opportunity right now. Hmm. Um, where are you looking? <laughs> I don't say for sure, but still Rockies. Uh-huh, like uh-huh. um, still oil basins, huh? <laughs> definitely oil basins. I would, I would, I would steer away from the gas right now. Don't walk into a private equity shop and pitch a gas deal right now. Yeah, it might not go well. No. It'd be an interesting story to tell though. <laughs> yes. You starts with now, listen to this shit. Yeah. But I think in terms of your point on the exit, like, what you really need to show is that no matter if you can sell the asset in three years or if you're just drilling it, like yeah. you basically have a contingency plan and you can make money either way. Development is a plan. People just forgot about it. Yeah. They used to sell in three to five years because that was their upside. That yeah. was how they got out of the red. Right. So exactly. <laughs> the birth of IP90 came from private equity. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so there's something else you're doing around town that I find very interesting. Bison is looking at alternatives, and I hate the word alternatives, but you are expanding in energy. Yes. So what does that mean for y'all? Why are you going to the dark side? <laughs> well, number one, to your point earlier, like the social license to operate in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important that we take at least some keys, some cues from you know, what Colorado looks like, and Colorado doesn't really love oil and gas. I mean, that's just the way it is. Not all, some but of it does. they love their Escalades and their G-Wagons and their ski lifts. They do, but again, like, you know, reason doesn't matter. And their fake snow. <laughs> reason doesn't matter here. They, everyone likes energy. They just don't like to know where it actually comes from. Yeah. But, you know, that, that was a big put, part of the push for us was just, you know, sort of understanding that and trying to fit into our state and trying to have the social license to go out and produce the energy that everyone here uses. Okay. Um, you know, the second part of it is honestly, like, it's important for us as people in the energy business to understand that like I think alternatives and renewables aren't going away mm-hmm. and if you're not learning about it and at least understanding it like you're not you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing your company a disservice I think any CEO who at least is not thinking about it um, isn't doing what they should be doing for their company mm-hmm. I'm not saying you have to invest in it I'm yeah. just saying you have to be thinking about it and you need to understand it and you need to understand how it impacts our business the oil business will um, we be seeing more of this coming out of y'all yeah, definitely. Um, right now, our big focus is on using um, wind and solar sources up in our Baja area, northeastern okay. Colorado, um, uh, like basically where we've already built out a lot of electrical infrastructure. Yeah. So we've probably built out. So you're trying to build yourself a sustainable microgrid for yeah, whatever you're doing? Yeah, that's basically it. And then sell that's it pretty cool. back also, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, that's the concept. And honestly, like, I will tell you, it doesn't make a lot of money, um, and I've looked at it hard. <laughs> but How hard? Uh, Where's the hard. spreadsheet? <laughs> There's a few of them, um, some with subsidies and some without. But uh, you can make money, and it's low risk. Okay. That's the thing about it is it's, it's very low risk. It's Why? different. Because basically, 
all putting of up these, a wind farm is low risk. Yeah, it is because huh. before you put up the wind farm, you know where the power is going. You know what you're going to get paid per kilowatt hour. Like okay. you know what the demand is. So you basically just build the suit. Oh. So it's it's low margin, but it's low risk. Interesting. Um, so it, it's it's interesting to do. You know, one of the things that we're looking at too is natural gas right now. That's mm-hmm. what you're saying sells yeah. for nothing. Yeah, I can afford it, and that is <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I mean, we're not making you know, we're making hardly anything on it, depending on our contract in Colorado right now. Yeah. Um, and so, if you can take that natural gas and you can actually actually channel it to generators that can sell directly to the grid, you can make money doing that. Yeah. Because the you know the price that you pay for electricity in the grid is a lot higher than the price you're paying for the equivalent electricity in an MCF and natural gas going to a plant right now. That's some good insider training. Thing. Yeah, I mean Thanks, it's man. not an, it, it takes there's a lot of uh, sort of hurdles to getting there. Uh huh. Um, and we're working on those. We don't want to be regulated like a utility, and no. you have to be careful about that. Yeah, there's no point to set yourself up to be fine for the sake of being fine right right um, we already do enough of that <laughs> yeah yeah but it's something that we're we're pretty interested in right now and that and, and the solar um component of it is is very simple mm. um it's not very sexy but it is what it is it's just <laughs> it's power um and you need you can't yeah you still need oil and gas because the sun doesn't always shine the wind doesn't always blow you need base load yeah, you need yeah. sustainable base load that's really what it comes down to you need base load and you need you know be able to meet peak demand too yeah i mean it's just we're a long way from that but i, I think that's the way we're looking at it is we need all of these forms of energy oil and gas is by far still our most important business mm-hmm. at bison like it is <laughs> what we spend 90 percent of our time on and it's what we love to do honestly it's what i love to do yeah but I will say that like the alternative energy side has been really interesting to learn about. It's something that we're expanding and something that we think is is going to be important here over the coming years. Like if you want to be an oil and gas company that goes public in the next two, three years, You've you better have, have a it. damn good alternative energy and ESG <laughs> plan. Interesting. But I wonder if you do that, if you could actually you could kill it potentially. So Oh, so you're gonna you're gonna show us how to do that, right? Hey, and we'll see. <laughs> I don't I, I I, I would never say that our goal is to go public by any means, but I do think that in this new day and age, I mean, we'll see what the next two years looks like. Cause Interesting. That's good. I like that you said right two now. years there. That's yeah. really smart, actually. So quick question. Do you, are you seeing having built this new space and this new form of an evolving energy company, um, are you seeing like transferable skill sets between Petros to other sides of the grid? Because we don't really talk about it. We don't even send Petros downstream. Like, yeah. On the land side and the contract side, big time. Yeah. I mean, we have that entire staff in-house. It just takes very little training to increase that. Okay. Um, on the facilities and electrical side, some overlap. Okay. Um, I'm just thinking because of layoffs recently, where can people start looking? Yeah. It, um, it, if you have electrical training, I think. Lucky you. Yeah. You're in demand. <laughs> the hardest engineering time. degree to get. Yes. <laughs> uh, electricals are going to be in huge demand. I mean, mechanical... They can do everything. Yeah, and they can build, help build these exactly. grids. So I think it's definitely somewhere to look. I okay. would not shy away from it at all. Go explore. Um, yeah, I would look at it Worst as just case another scenario, piece you're of a project it. manager because yeah. you understand energy. Right, yeah. You'll learn more about energy, and honestly, it'll keep you really marketable in mm-hmm. this scary time where oil and gas is, is tough. It's, it is a new scary time. We haven't seen has. this since the 80s. But on that note, the oil field ecosystem – How do you see us evolving in the next couple of years? And I'm talking like we're in such rapid volatility right now. Yeah. Five years. What do you think is going to come out of this pivot? Yeah, I think there's going to be a a huge amount of consolidation still. Still. I think there's going to be. What, for like the next two years, you think? Or like towards the end of this year? 
Oh, I think it'll start in the spring. Oh, um, God. Yeah. I've as, heard rumors. <laughs> I mean, redeterminations are happening right now, and oil just dropped from 60 to 45. Like, it's, I don't even want to know what the bank Thanks price tax Thanks, coronavirus. Like. Yeah. <laughs> and Sanders. When in doubt, when in doubt, <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's rough. Like, I, honestly, I gave a talk the other day at Adam Rockies, and, I, you know, I, I try to not be too negative. Um, and I think the way to not be too negative is to just accept the fact that it's going to be a really rough go for a while. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of companies that have been around for a very long time who don't exist anymore at the end of this year. Yeah. Uh, being negative be and being sales. blunt and honest yeah. are two different things. And right now, I know we're in a sensitive time, yeah. but I would rather have a CEO say, you know what? I know it sucks rather than yeah. sit there and try and sugarcoat it so I feel a little bit better. Yeah. No, it's it's going to be it's going to be a rough year, I think, okay. for everybody. And it's going to be a year of surviving. It's going to be a year of cutting debt. It's going to be a year of focusing on being extremely prudent and only making accretive decisions okay. with your capital. Um, a year of innovation at all, do you think? Um, or is this the year of survival? I would say more year of survival. I, if there's any innovation, it's going to be fine-tuning how wells make money. Yeah, yeah existing operations. Yeah, exactly. Uh, existing operations and, I guess, new capital spend. Okay. Like, making sure you're not wasting money by going too big with your fracks, basically. Okay. You know, understanding what it really the means to The bigger frack doesn't always lead to the better outcome. Not always. It's just, they just like the hammer. Yeah. Trust, I mean, trust <laughs> me, I love big fracks, but, um, but it's... Yeah, sometimes it's not the right move. And, you know, three-mile laterals, like, is that a real – is that really is the way Is it really to go? necessary? Are you really contributing to Are the Are you hitting line? diminishing returns? Yeah. I, I think that's a real question. And then also some of these horrible midstream contracts that have been struck um, – that's going to be really interesting to see what happens because people are going to just stop drilling. And the midstream guys are going to have to understand, well, if I don't adapt these contracts, nobody might drill here. So I think You that's sound like piece. you're having some firsthand negotiations there. You know, we're not so much <laughs> um, because we built out all of our midstream really on our own. Okay. But I think particularly in basins we're looking at entering, midstream yeah. contracts are a huge burden. Interesting. So that's um, something to watch then. Yeah. There's potential opportunity there. Well, Austin, I know I need to let you go, but before I do, book, podcast, or other resource that has brought you value that you would recommend to someone else? Oh, great question. I'd say uh, a great book for today is The Hard Thing About Hard Things. That's a, that's a really good one. It's a great book for, for today. It reminds you that, as I said, it's always darkest before the dawn. Yeah, you shit happens this. and it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, it's like Warren Buffett's head, right? If uh, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. If you can harness that right now, there's, there's still a lot of value in this industry and a lot of value in energy. That is awesome advice. Thank you so much, Austin. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has been excellent. I love grilling you for the secret sauce. I think it's going to help tons of people. So thank you for your uh, time this morning. Thank you. Happy to. today's episode brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.